This message is brought to you by DoNotAge.org, the longevity research organisation that's on a mission to extend health span for as many people as possible via products that actually work. Start your journey today at DoNotAge.org and use code LAMA for a 10% discount. That's L-L-A-M-A. We're going to be able to impact disease, aging, and there are lots of billionaires who I think wish to live much longer lives who are looking at that and funding that. And I think we have to look in a socially responsible manner to say, make sure you're not just prolonging a life that's not lived. Hello and welcome to the Live Long and Master Aging podcast. I'm Peter Bowes and this is another episode recorded at the recent USC Center for Body Computing Conference in Los Angeles. My guest is Dr. David Albert, sometimes referred to as the father of digital health and the recipient of the center's first Digital Health Innovator Award. Dr. Albert has been at the center of the medical tech world for the past three decades. He's the founder of multiple companies, including Alive Core, which has developed a mobile ECG or electrocardiogram sensor, the app that turns your phone into a gadget that can detect and analyze your heart rhythm or the heart rhythm of anyone who happens to be with you. Well, we sat down shortly after Dr. Albert picked up his award and started by talking in more detail about the device, which has really revolutionised the way the general public, that's all of us, can monitor our own hearts and share the results with our doctors. Dr. David Albert, welcome to the Lama Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. So explain to me in some more detail how this works. Essentially, you can grab onto your mobile phone and touch the sensors and see in real time your EKG. And that information can be sent in real time to your doctor. That's correct. Coming from medicine and academic medicine, I had seen how people deal with issues related to the heart. And it's always going to your doctor, whether their office or going to emergency room, to have an electrocardiogram to see what kind of rhythm you're in. And cardiac rhythm abnormalities are, are a major problem around the world with many, many tens of millions of people, if not hundreds of millions, suffering from these abnormalities, which can lead to everything from stroke to, to death. And so I saw an opportunity with the birth of the smartphone when Steve Jobs introduced the iPhone and said this is going to change everything. You know, very seldom in your life do you hear something as bold a statement as that was that turns out to be true. So that these smartphones have become the remote control for our lives, banking, transportation, communication, movies, TV, video, we, we do everything and sit there and interact with these 200 times a day. And so I saw that as a platform that could enable the democratization of this important piece of medical information about yourself. And I thought, and, and maybe I could say accurately now, but certainly seven years ago, that it would help engage patients. Because one problem we have in cardiology is we do not – our patients sometimes don't do what we tell them or what we recommend or what we prescribe to them. They don't take their medicines. They don't eat right. They don't exercise. They don't do the things that would extend their longevity and their healthy life. And so what we need to do is engage them, empower them, make them a part of the process, not just a recipient. And my friend, Dr. Eric Topol, talks about the end of paternalistic medicine. And his book, his most recent book was, The Patient Will See You Now. 
That's exactly the attitude we need to have. And patients need to own their data and own the responsibility. And this is true for whether you're sick or whether you're simply trying to stay healthy. You have to take a personal responsibility and be engaged. So I saw the smartphone as an opportunity and was fortunate enough to develop some technology that enables that smartphone to be a personal cardiac rhythm device, a personal EKG device. And as I've, I've said a number of times, the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. And using this technology, you can go directly from the patient to a caregiver and cut that time of interaction to its bare minimum and then oftentimes save a life. Uh, here in the United States, the likes of Mayo Clinic and Cleveland Clinic and Cedars-Sinai, major medical centers all over the country use our device. And the reason is it's cost-effective. Instead of going to a hospital and spending $250 to get an EKG, for $99, a patient can have an EKG anywhere, anytime, and literally send it to their cardiologist, their doctor, immediately and get the feedback that they might need or the reassurance that you're fine. Because peace of mind is oftentimes as important as a piece of medical information. Anxiety and stress impact our lives, impact our longevity. And I often have this theory that people watch the news, not so much to see what's happening, but what hasn't happened, to make sure that everything is is reasonably, let's say, okay with the world and that they haven't missed anything huge. I think you're talking about the same thing in terms of reassurance that just everything is okay and just having that information in itself is hugely powerful. Well, it is. Uh, as of late, the news has not exactly no. It doesn't exactly follow my theory, <laughs> but 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 I I totally understand and agree with you that that's true. Human beings are social creatures, and uh, earlier in this meeting today, we heard that social isolation in elderly is as bad as smoking cigarettes and uh, decreases longevity and certainly quality of life. And so, you know, if smartphones have done anything. They have – well, some people would say they've decreased the human-to-human -human communication. They've at least given it a larger distance. And so we can – you know, whether we can communicate with our children or grandchildren or whoever it is that's at a distance, it can bring us together that way. Uh, what we need to make sure of is it doesn't keep us from being close to those people three feet away from us. And that sometimes is, is the issue. Well, that's challenging for a lot of people. Yes, it is. Yeah. So in terms of – I mean, clearly, you have lived with this technology for some time now. You've applied it to create a piece of tech that is so universally useful around the world for so many people. I'm curious in terms of what you have learned about what is possible. How do you apply that to your own life and well, your own aspirations it, in terms of longevity? It's interesting. First of all, I'm too old to do this. I'm 62 years old. And when I started this company. You, starting companies is like raising babies. It's really meant for young people. But I did it anyway. And so what I would tell you is that at the beginning of this company back in the 2011-2012 timeframe, I was traveling all over. I was not eating well. I was probably drinking too much. I was doing all kinds of things that aren't good for you. And I had led a, essentially a healthy life. My father lived to be 91. All his siblings lived into their 90s. So I would took for granted that I and, – and I had been an, an athlete and so I just took for granted how I lived. And then 
I was 59 years old and I woke up one morning and I said, oh my gosh, I'm going to turn 60. And I'd always thought that 60, most of my life, was the definition of an old man. And so I said, oh, I've got to stop. And, and so I did what I'd, I knew how to do. The good news is I knew about good nutrition. I knew about exercise. I'd gone to the Olympic trials as a wrestler. I'd been a college wrestler. I'd, I'd really been an athlete. So what I did is I changed my lifestyle. And I went from 155 pounds to 130 pounds. I weigh what I did in college, and I was a, a Division I NCAA athlete. So I ate better, and I basically lived what I preached for everyone else. I told them to eat, eat less cow, eat more like a cow. Cows eat only grass. <laughs> okay, so the notion was you don't have to be vegan, all right? The longest living people in the world in South America are omnivores. But what you need to do is be sensible. And so my wife and I go out to dinner. We split one entree. We've learned to be sensible in our lives. You have a glass of wine? Yeah, you have one glass of wine. And you don't have five glasses of wine. And so those are simple things. And exercise was always you know, easy for me. And I, I got seriously back into working out. And, uh, and I shame my children in their workout habits. And that's had a positive impact on them. I think we can all have an impact on our fellow men. And, and whether or not I live a year longer or not, the quality of my life will be better. And I think that's key. You know, it's not just longevity, it's quality. And as you look back on those years, perhaps when you didn't heed your own advice, as someone who is medically qualified and, and really understood those issues, is there something about being young and youthful that makes you ignore the obvious, do you think? And well, are there lessons to be learned for, for other people? Well, it's, it's when you're a teenager, you will live forever. Just ask them. When you're 20s, you believe you'll live to be old, really old, and you can't relate to anybody really old, like over 50. Uh, <laughs> and I think... And, well, and even at 62, you said? Yes. That's not old. No, absolutely not. As a matter of fact, at, at when I was getting in and I had gotten back into shape and I said, I'm 40. And people looked at me. I said, well, because 60 is the new 40. And, and that was, you know, I, I sincerely believe that we can – we already know incontrovertibly that you can have a direct impact with your lifestyle on your longevity and on your functional longevity, that is your quality of life at an older age. And so many of the chronic diseases and the causes of mortality in the world can be impacted by changes in your phenotype, by your lifestyle. Not just We're not slaves to our DNA in many instances. And so I think you know whether it's a device like mine for people who are worried, who have a family history, or who even have manifested disease – you can take control of your life and do better. And and I saw that firsthand. My father was uh, in his late 50s when he had his first heart attack. He totally changed his life and lived to be 91. And I watched it and it was remarkable. And that was lost on me even long after I went into medicine and, and got out until I realized I saw that firsthand. I don't just say it. I believe it. And now I live it. So, And, and I, I'll live it Till the day I stop living it. And, and so, is that an argument that food or, or diet and, and, and exercise, a combination of both, can reverse disease? Oh, I don't think there's any question. And we can, uh, you know, what we're learning 
is you are what you eat. It's absolutely true. In medicine, look, so I went to Duke Medical School. It's one of the outstanding medical schools in the United States. And uh, when I graduated in 1981, we had no nutrition education. My son is a second-year resident registrar in England here at at Cedars-Sinai, the biggest hospital west of the Mississippi. And when he was in medical school, he had a whole semester of nutrition education just a couple of years ago. So we've gotten smarter. We know what's more important. And we know that's true, just like exercise. I couldn't – no one taught me how to prescribe exercise. No one taught me how to prescribe nutrition and a diet. And so I think we're getting smarter if we can pass that on. You know, let me give you one small example. Several years ago, one of the main cardiologists in China came over and gave a plenary address at the American Heart Association annual meeting. And he got up and his English was kind of broken, but it was – he said, we make many, many things in China and export them to the United States. But you all have exported your lifestyle to China. So that we now smoke cigarettes, we sit behind desks, we, we don't exercise, we're not living out on the farms, you know, tending to rice fields. And because of that, our incidence of heart disease is growing exponentially. And he says, yeah, we've polluted our air too. So we've done all these things because we've imported the Western lifestyle. And so we need to learn to export living well. And I think, you know, in parts of the world that are rural, they may die of infectious diseases that we discounted long ago. We need to share with them, share how they stay healthy, and we'll share with them our modern medicine. And together, we'll have a better planet. And what's interesting to me is that this this is in part simplifying our lives, actually going back to how we used to do things. And I'm thinking in terms of diet especially, but also embracing technology, the kind of technology that you have developed. Both elements have key roles to play in our future longevity. Well, we, we, uh, we're very involved at my company in looking at a variety of things. Much of what we look at is focused on patients who are sick. They are patients. But there are two types of people in this world. They're patients and future patients. And the only way you avoid being a patient is if you die with, with no warning, and that's a bad thing. So we're also engaged in how do we maintain healthy living as we further our ability to predict who is at risk. And, you know, vigilance, who's at risk? The San Andreas Fault, not far from here, is at risk to deliver something like Mexico City just underwent. Mm. But, but they're monitoring it far more than they were monitoring in Mexico City. And so hopefully we'll have prediction and be able to manage risk. And I think that's – we need to apply that to our bodies and to our, our lives. You actually received an award today for the work that you've been doing. Congratulations well, well, on that. Well, thank you very much. Uh, uh, Leslie's an old friend and, and uh, she's been one of the great supporters of, of uh, my innovations and uh, I certainly appreciate and am humbled by her uh, – by the award. And this is Dr. Leslie Saxon, who has been on this podcast. I think it's episode 13, if you want to go back and have a listen to what Leslie said. And in terms of the adoption of the technology, especially your tech, but we've been at this conference hearing about other applications for mobile phone technology, how highly do you rate the challenge of the elderly population actually understanding and embracing 
this technology? In some cases, it, it really isn't easy, is it? You're, you're absolutely right. And uh, when I started in uh, with Leslie back in 2011, she had her meeting, and it was probably about the same size as this. And we were going to hand out one of our devices to everyone at the meeting who had an iPhone because it only worked on the iPhone at the time. Today, it works on Android also. We handed out 58. 58 is maybe, what, a third or a fourth? Because those were the only people that had iPhones in 2011. Uh, they had to have an iPhone 4, the most current version. And that just shows you that today – the, the demographic with the smallest penetration of smartphones are the people over 80. People over 70, it's a little more, over 60. And, and so what we know is, fortunately or unfortunately, as today's 62-year-olds become 80-year-olds, octogenarians, nonagenarians, we will use and be comfortable with smartphones. So that transition period is always difficult because there are some – outliers, the 90-year-olds the who can use a smartphone, but, but the vast majority are still uncomfortable with that technology because it's change and change is hard for many of us. Which is why it's all the more important for those family members and those carers around the octogenarians and the centenarians that could benefit from this technology. They are the community that need to be educated. They are the generation that need it, to be educated. It takes a village. It takes a family. And so we are, in essence, a tribal being, human beings are. And, you know, we need to help and empower our family members who need that assistance. And I think that you just named it. You know, the alpha daughters who take care of their parents and their children, those alpha daughters, we need to cultivate them, support them, because they're the ones who are going to help implement new technologies that will improve the lives of those parents and they need to be the ones we support to help with that implementation. And David, you've expressed very eloquently your attitudes towards longevity and, and what you do now to optimize your health. As you think about growing old, the many decades that you still have to go, what is your attitude about yourself? And do you have aspirations for the future? Yeah, I, I would tell you that I, in this area we call digital health, I have several people that call me the father of digital health because I'm 62 and many of these young companies, whether it's in the UK or the US, wherever, are started by people to the age of my children, literally, millennials. And I have kids 30s, kids in the 20s, kids down to 18. I have a lot of kids. What I would tell you is that I look forward to working at my own pace and my own schedule well into my 70s and I can't see being unengaged or unemployed until I'm at least 75 years old. So, you know, 15 years from now. Well, you and, may be unemployed, but you might not be necessarily unengaged. Well, that's right. And, and that's right. I, I may, I, I can be engaged. As my wife says, you know, sometime in the near future, I need to go back to teaching, which I used to do. And so I need to be out of implementing and helping others. And I already embrace that. I have a number of people come up to me at this meeting and other places saying, I have this idea. Can you help me? And, you know, that's, that's my next responsibility is to help the next generation of entrepreneur come up with the next innovation that will help us live longer, better lives. And the question I'm often posed is why live? You can see why live a healthy life, but why live a long life? Well, the only, the only reason to live a long – you know, 
we've had various science fiction pieces that talk about uh, you know uh, you get to a certain age and you go into the disintegrator and it turns you into slaylent green, right? <laughs> it's people. Uh, uh, so I think you know the reality is live as long as you can be a functioning human being. And I've seen it in medicine where we have the technological ability to keep people living long past the time that they, <laughs> they would like to be living. So that's why quality of life is so important. Live a long quality life, not just a long life. And in terms of, let's say, crystal ball time, the technology of the future, do you see something in your mind that is really going to be a game changer like the iPhone was? Well, I think, I think you know, we just have to look at, at what Watson and Crick did, the, <laughs> our DNA. And uh, there was a billboard two or three years ago outside of San Francisco that said one-third of the children born this year will live to be 100. Well, we're going to understand DNA better and we're going to be able to impact disease, aging. And there are lots of billionaires who I think wish to live much longer lives who are looking at that and funding that. And I think we have to look socially in a socially responsible manner to say – Make sure you're not just prolonging a life that's not lived. You mentioned San Francisco. How do you account for, maybe it's obvious, but how do you account for Silicon Valley's sudden, apparent sudden surge in interest in this business of longevity? Well, because the the young entrepreneurs now aren't so young anymore. You know, I guess Mark Zuckerberg is the youngest at, at 33, but, you know, when you've got the likes of Larry Ellison, who's 70s, and you've got uh, Sergey Brin and Larry Page, who are now well into their 40s, and Bill Gates and I were classmates, so I know he, how old he is. I think he's 61. I don't think he's turned 62 yet. you got those people. All of a sudden, they have tremendous resources, tremendously brilliant people, and for the first time in their lives, they're outside of that 20. They don't think they're going to live forever. And, and so longevity has become something of interest to them. And I think, you know, they may have parents who have gotten old. I mean, again, when we're young enough, not only do we not think we're going to die, we don't see our parents as dying. And so as you age, as you, as you move up and you see grandparents and then parents, that can have an impact on you. And I think these people are now saying, well, what can we do with our great wealth we've created? Can we make the world a better place? And oh, by the way, can it help me too? <laughs> so, you know, there's a little self-interest in this. I can't I don't know that for a fact, but it wouldn't surprise me. And this probably accounts for the tremendous burgeoning of the biohacking community that there is in Silicon Absolutely. Valley. Everybody's telomere aware now. Okay. Telomere, uh-huh. diet, exactly. whatever kind of lifestyle, exercise. diet, exercise, personal trainers, personal chefs. And, and soon enough, they'll have personal geneticists. And the quantitative body and, and, and all of that, which, yeah. which to me is all fascinating and, and quite exciting. Well, it is fascinating. It is exciting. I, I think one of the things that, that Silicon Valley is not used to is having things take so long. Human biology and insights move slowly compared to changing code on a smartphone. And so I think that's, that's something they're uh, – they're, they're getting used to. I know I, I spend a lot of time in Silicon Valley. My company's headquartered in Mountain View, where Google is. And I have a lot of ex-Google, ex-Silicon Valley people. And they continue to be frustrated with the pace that medical progress uh, goes at, as opposed to the pace 
that uh, a new code, a new app, a new chip are developed at. And so uh, they're getting used to it, but it's uh, it's it's an education for them. But maybe it's not going to be quite as slow in the future with the way that we can now collect big data using tech interfaces, patient, doctor, things I think will move a little faster. Oh, and you may well be right. I mean, we have in the last 15 years, you've taken computing power and storage has basically become an unlimited resource. So we don't have any limits in how much data we can store. You know, the data stored today is much greater than the data leading up to 1980 from the beginning of history. So every day we're storing, you know, how many photos, how many voice messages, how many videos, how much information is being stored is mind-boggling. And I think big data, machine learning, this notion of deep neural networks will help us. You know, autonomous vehicles. How much more productive would I be if I could sit there and not be focused only on the road? And how much safer would we be? There are going to be many, many questions. And by the way, as many authors have written, a lot of challenges. What happens to those people who didn't get on the information education expressway? What's going to happen to them? And what are those social dislocations like? And by the way, we already know today, affluence impacts longevity anywhere in the world. So if you are more affluent, you will live longer. Now, that's the kind of discrimination that I think we have to work to fight. Hmm, quite agree. Final question. Knowing everything that you know in this arena, what would your advice be to your 20-year-old self? Um, the only thing I can guarantee you is that the world's going to change. Knowing facts is not nearly as important as being able to adapt to a changing environment and being able to continuously learn. That's the most important thing. And by the way, that's what I tell my children. Dr. David Albert, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, sir. Take care. And if you'd like more information about Alive Core and the USC Center for Body Computing, you'll find some hopefully useful links in the show notes for this interview at our Live Long and Master Aging website, llamapodcast.com. That's L-L-A-M-A podcast.com. And just a final word, as ever, if you enjoy what we do, a five-star review at iTunes will be hugely appreciated. It helps us to grow the podcast and hopefully secure its future. Many thanks for listening. FlexBeam is a portable red light therapy device that's now being used by leading athletes, including the Norwegian tennis player Kasper Rud. Whenever you put the FlexBeam on, you feel it starts to work right away. I need something that can help repair all the fibers that I have broken in the surfs. The infrared lights penetrate your skin and makes the muscle tissue recover faster. FlexBeam, I keep it with me all the time. Recharge Health is offering Llama Podcast listeners an $80 discount on the purchase of a FlexBeam device. Go to the website recharge.health and use the code LLAMA at checkout. That's L-L-A-M-A. You'll also find the link in the show notes for this episode.